Hello, and thanks for joining us at the next episode of Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to some of the leading minds in wealth management. In today's episode, we're speaking with Paul Heath, the CEO and one of the founders of Coda Capital, a private wealth management firm focused on servicing Australia's wealthy individuals and families. In today's episode, we're talking about managing liquidity events. How do people manage when a large amount of wealth suddenly appears? What are the processes they go through? What are some of the tips and traps? I think it's a fascinating area. It's not as simple as most people believe. I should also add in the interest of disclosure that I'm a partner at Coda Capital and work closely with Paul on a day-to-day basis. So without any further ado, over to the podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Please remember to rate it, share it, and provide feedback. We enjoy that. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Paul Heath, welcome to Inside the Rope. David, it's a pleasure to be here. I need to tell you that uh, given the calibre of your previous guests, I'm a combination of terribly flattered and slightly intimidated. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. I know that. Perhaps we could kick off with you giving us a little bit of insight into your background and what's really shaped your views in providing advice in financial services. Sure. So um, my, my, my time in financial services really dates back to the very early 1990s. I spent a very brief period of time as a derivatives trader for Bankers Trust. It was a terrific way to learn and understand how markets worked. I can't tell you I was terribly good at that job. But in 1994, I became an investment advisor at J.B. Weir. And um, that really uh, was a fundamental shaper for my career. Uh, J.B. Weir was a business that was very steeped in history and values. Uh, and I was an advisor in the private client area where we looked after um, a range of clients, but importantly, a significant number of high net worth clients. I was very fortunate uh, that I had a combination of some very good mentors throughout that time at JB Weir, combined with some people around the firm who were prepared to back young talent. And, and I eventually uh, came to run the private client division or the private wealth management division of JB Weir. Uh, Goldman Sachs JB Weir, Goldman's bought 45% of that business in 2003. And then in 2009, uh, that private wealth business was sold into a joint venture with the National Australia Bank. And uh, so I spent a bit of time uh, in that environment. In 2013, uh, I left what was then JB Weir. um, And that was when the opportunity to present or to create Coda Capital arose. Um, Coda Capital was just a response to what we saw as a gap in the high net worth advisory market. And, you know, when we look at the business today, uh, I'm very proud of the the team that we've been able to assemble and what they've been able to accomplish in a relatively short period of time. So that's that's really me, David. I've, I've always been involved in working with high net worth individual clients. It's my expertise and my entire career has been founded really in that. So during that time, you must have come across and seen many liquidity events, the subject that I want to address today and talk about because it's intrigued me how clients deal with these and you see some that don't end very well at all and you see some that are totally transformative and empowering and I think it's an interesting one because a lot of people just wish and think constantly if I had this liquidity event, if I had this 
you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 million, 500 million fall into my lap, um, boy, life would be different. I'd be so much happier. I, I'm constantly reminding people, be careful what you wish for. But you must have seen many transactions like yeah. that during that time, during your period at JB Weir. Totally. Um, you know, we, we inevitably came across people where a successful business, most often a family business, had been turned into a lump of capital through a liquidity event and the processes that came with that. Um, and, and it's fair to say that through that period of time, I've seen, you're right, some, some very successful transformations, um, some things that have been quite unsuccessful, and we can talk a little bit about that. One of the things I wanted to go back to that I learned from my time at JB Weir, I said to you that it was a firm that was very steeped in values. One of the sort of concepts that resonated through my time at that organisation is the idea that you, you make money slowly. If you set out to make money slowly, you'll end up doing very well over a long period of time. Invest over the long term, invest in quality. Don't try to chase fads or fast outcomes, but be serious over time. The reason I raise that is there's enormous parallels between that and the principles by which many people set up a successful business. They don't set up with a view that they're going to be an overnight success, and they very rarely are. They, they set out to build a really good, high-quality business over a long period of time. And it just so happens that there's these parallels that comes, that comes through. We can explore more of this in a little bit of detail, but I'm often so surprised that when that lump of money shows up, all of that valuable experience about how you make money slowly goes out the window. <laughs> and, and there's a sudden desire to feel as though you need to make money fast, despite that you, you have this. And that can often be the foundations of quite a disastrous outcome. The same sort of principles that made people successful often will work very well in that post-liquidity event. But you need to be a different, it's a different organisational skill. You know, one of, the, one of the really important things that we would say is that the successful business entrepreneur has got that way by managing a very specific single risk understanding it really well and managing it well. You know, most business owners, when you speak to them, over 30, 40, or even 50 years in a business, they've encountered crises, they've encountered challenges in their business, but they know so much about the operating environment and the drivers of that business, they're able to navigate their way through that. Um, successful investing is a very different skill set. You know, the principle that diversification is really important. Lots and lots of smaller and different risks the ability to have time and patience to allow money to compound, you know, the magic of compounding over time. Those two mindsets are very, very different mindsets than what had typically made an entrepreneur successful in the first instance. And so for us, the liquidity event represents a change in a point in time. But to successfully move on to the next phase, there has to be this really change of mindset around what it is going to take to be successful from that point on in terms of what you're doing. And, and some people can make that leap seamlessly. Plenty can't. And um, it's, it's, it's a very challenging time for the entrepreneur. It's a challenging time for their family as they think about what's next in their life. But um, for as many people who have made that successfully, I can tell you the people who haven't. Well, I think the skill set required to passively manage wealth 
is often very different to the skill set uh, required to build a logistics company, to build a marina, may, whatever it may be. Um, I think you're right that the core values underneath that are often the same and very important. Um, what, what are some of the other common mistakes that you see people make when they're approaching that yeah. and also managing that transition? So, so there's, a, there's a couple of different things that I would observe over time. If, we, if we're going to talk about um, the, the mistakes, um, it, it, the opposite of that is what defines success. Mm -hmm. A couple of key mistakes that you can make over, over time. The first one is that, that, that mindset um, that says, for me to, to, to be successful in managing this now this pool of capital that used to be an operating business, it requires me to think very differently about the outcomes and how that, that needs to happen. The fact that a business entrepreneur was very successful in a particular domain, a logistics company, for example, doesn't mean that they will automatically be successful as an investor. Very different skill sets. And you often will see the case where success in one domain creates the assumption that you can be successful in another domain without actually having to learn new skills or, or do anything different. Yep, that, the, that, the, the confidence that they take from their ability to make decisions and create 20% plus yeah. compound annual growth in rolling out new, yeah. new business lines, etc. That's right. Completely different skill set. Entirely different skill set. There's something simple. If, if business entrepreneurs will, will sit there and look at the, at the business and their attention will be immediately drawn to whatever it is that's not working and they'll want to fix it or, or sell it or remove it. That's the nature of how you run a business in that sense. Portfolio investing is, if, you, if everything's performing really well, you're not diversified. You know, so there's a really these fundamental shifts in skills and capabilities that have to happen. The other thing that I would observe, which goes a little more, David, to the successful transition, <clears throat> is that the, the successful transition, the, 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 the entrepreneur or the family, they don't see their next job as managing the wealth they'll be moving into a new future that will involve them doing different things and the wealth is often the enabler of that. And so, so that liquidity event, you could describe it in many different ways as a fork in the road. But where I've seen people do it really successfully is they, they, they're able to recognise that they're moving into doing something new. They're not shifting their job from running a company to running a pool of capital. Okay, because the business entrepreneurs are often, they still have energy, they still want to get, they, they want to leave a legacy, they, they want to do all those sort of things. And often, running an investment portfolio, passive wealth, isn't the right vehicle to do that. So, to me, it's all about the mindset and having the humility to understand that, that the fact that you were successful here in doing this particular thing isn't automatically going to make you successful over here. And so what the people who do it incredibly well, they recognise that. They'll identify what are the skills that I might need. Do I truly have them? If not, can I get somebody in? Can I trust them? Another thing, business entrepreneurs typically have been very, very hands-on. And passive, managing passive wealth often means being hands-off and letting the market do the work and letting the investment compound over time make money slowly, okay? And it's a very difficult thing for them to do. 
The people who can make that transition, the wealth that they've created becomes an enabler and it allows them to have a whole bunch of choices about what their next role is going to be. Um, and, and very often uh, it can be the catalyst for them to having a, a, a very happy and fulfilling um, life that sits beyond the liquidity event. The liquidity event itself is simply a transition point you know, from being a business operator to being something else. The money that comes with it is often uh, secondary for those people who make that transition really well. It's not the primary purpose there. So where you've seen this work successfully and you've seen really good outcomes, what type of process do those entrepreneurs or families tend to go through? So the, 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 the first thing is, is that, um, particularly in relation to families, if it's a family business, they do, I think, I think three things. The first one is leading into the liquidity event. They're well advised and well organized. And they know, they know that um, selling, a, selling a business which has been in the family often for multiple generations is an incredibly emotional time. And so they tend to be uh, well structured and well advised and disciplined about the, pro about the process that's going to get them to that point of sale. The second thing is they typically have a, have a pretty clear idea or they've, they've built into that process a period of time to reflect so that they can know in fairly broad terms what they're going to beyond all of that. Um, it's not suddenly an emptiness in their life with a big pool of money. They've, they're pretty well, well structured around that. They're well advised. Okay. Um, whether it's through the business sale or whether it's through the, the, the period after, um, the, the people who do this very successfully want to learn how to make it successful. It's a pretty important part of, part of their life, this pool of money, so they're well advised. And the last thing is, is they're communicating really clearly about what this is gonna happen with all of the stakeholders in that process, whether it is their families, whether it is customers of the business, whether it's the groups that want to work with them beyond the liquidity event, very often philanthropy and giving back into the community plays an important role in all of that. Um, and so, David, it's no different, I don't think, from where you would see this work in other, other domains. To the extent that you're well organised, you can see a clear pathway, you're communicating really well. Those are, tend to be the attributes for what happens. And again, I think this notion that that when the liquidity event comes, the, the, the entrepreneur that can shift their mind from I have to run all of this to this is now an enabler for me to run other parts of what I want to do in my life, that's a really important mind shift that, that the people who do this successfully get, get right, get early, and, and they make clear to everybody that this is my priorities, these are my priorities and this is how I'm going to run it through. The thing that's amazed me, I guess, in dealing with clients in this space uh, over the years is almost the, the self-awareness that's so much needed. Um, you know, constantly whenever I play golf and you have a new person in the group um, and, and they may have finished a phase of their working career, they're always a retired engineer, a retired accountant. No one's just retired. Um, so that self-fulfillment and what defines them, I think, is, is very important and it can lead them in my experience, to 
make decisions in these processes that are, are quite aggressive and almost um, risk the bank. If you look like at someone like a Nathan Tinkler of the world, you'd, you'd look at and see a series of decisions that were increasingly risky of, i.e., let's bet the farm because that's what I've done in the past and I'll keep betting the farm and it feels right to be very entrepreneurial and very risky. I think in those cases, confusing the ability of yourself to execute on a business plan and, and, and run an entrepreneurial business versus managing a, a passive management. It's, it's, a, it's just a, it's a, it's a completely different skill set. Um, the, there's, a, there's a tendency for successful business entrepreneurs to have a curiosity. That's, that's a great skill to take into the next phase of whatever is going to be happening. Um, but but the, the, you're right, the, the, this, this real danger that one of, one of two things drives the motivation. I want to do it again. I want to demonstrate that you know, that was more than just luck in building that and I'm going, to, I'm going to do this again by taking a very small number of quite aggressive risks in areas that I don't have expertise in. Um, in some ways, you'd look back and say that's illogical, but it's the same sort of that mindset shift. Or you don't have control sure. over. Or you don't have control over. Typically, a business owner is very used to being right on the levers of control, and suddenly you're making investments in businesses that other people might be running. Entirely different sort of skill outcome. So where people opt for more passive investments with that wealth, where and how should they think about the advisors they use and, and should they, for instance, a common one we, we often talk about or get is should I have one or two advisors? Yeah. Um, so I think the, the best relationships are where you find someone with the skill set that you need and you trust them. Okay. Trust doesn't come immediately. And one of the challenges a, a, a business owner who now has gone through the liquidity event faces is there's this pool of money and something has to be done with it. Now, one of the easy ways to kind of try to mitigate against that is to pick two or three different advisors and therefore you're kind of spreading that risk around. Um, in my experience, the, the friction costs of doing that, having three different people who might be doing largely the same thing, it, it, it's not, a, not an efficient way to run the process. The better way to do it would be to take a little bit more time and find the person that you really trust and then make sure that the right controls are in place so that you can supervise them and hold them to accountable to account there the service level agreements and benchmark performance expectations so you have the measures of knowing whether that person is doing the job that you're employing them to do or not. Again, a very similar skill to what the business entrepreneur would have found in the business context. But you've got to learn to apply that in the wealth management context, which is often, often a hard thing to do. There's a, there's a sense of I need to get this money deployed. I need to get this money working hard for me. No, no, nothing drives <laughs> a poor decision like having cash in the bank yeah, and right. watching markets run up and all, all your friends and all your mates uh, make returns and then somebody pulls the trigger and makes a, a poor decision. So yeah. would it make sense for people who can see a liquidity event coming at some date to maybe start a relationship yeah. with an advisor before the liquidity well, event. The, the, we, would, we would encourage that. Um, a business owner who is in a business today knows that at some stage there, there might be a change. So many of, the, the, many of our clients, we, we know that they 
they might have a business today, but they know that their children don't want to run that business. Or they know that their children don't have the skill sets to run that business. And so then these things can be seen often years out. And so there's a great opportunity to build up those relationships at the time. Because when, you, when you're on the other side of the transaction and there's this big pool of money and there's people who are going to be in your ear, you know, you know, David, that the only thing that is more powerful than the fear of loss is the fear of missing out. And, and in that emotional context, you've got to take your time and you've got to, you've got to sort of um, make clear decisions, which is why in the people who make that journey successfully, they get to the other side, they're organised, they know what they need to do, the relationships they need are in place. So choosing multiple advisors solves one problem. I think it creates another problem. The better choice is to find the person who can do the job you want them to do, set things up to hold them to account, measure the outcomes effectively, be disciplined, and, and, and those things are as good as um, having multiple advisors. The other, the other thing that's really important for a post-liquidity event for the entrepreneur is to recognise the difference between a good portfolio and a portfolio of good ideas. Okay? Again, when there's that pool of money there, lots of people come and say, you should be doing this or you should be doing that or you should be doing that. The entrepreneurial mindset looks for a little bit of excitement and a little bit of adventure. And it's amazing how often, three to four years down the track, um, there is a portfolio of investments that have no coherent strategy. Um, and, and it's actually making things worse because... Um, Often you, you will have heard very many stories of a successful business entrepreneur who passed suddenly and their families were left with this incoherent set of investments that made no sense, they couldn't control them, and it, and it made uh, their lives terrible to try to coordinate all of that. You know, post-liquidity event, there's this choice about uh, what, you, what you're going to pass down through to your family. Um, very often that pool of money will outlast you, your children, your children's children. And you can decide whether you're going to leave them a gift that enables them to have a wonderful life or you can decide whether you're going to leave them something which is going to cause them a lot of grief and heartache. Really good, well-organised estate planning. A portfolio that can last through generations that doesn't require people to quit their day jobs in order to run the money. Um, those are the sorts of things that, that the people who do this well get that organised and therefore um, they end up knowing that the wealth will look after itself, it's being well, uh, well managed and professionally run and then they can get on with the other things that they actually want to do in their lives and their children can get on with the things that they want to do in their lives, and the money becomes an enabler. It doesn't become a burden. All of that requires planning and an acceptance that the way that you made the money in the first place might not be the way to run the money after the liquidity event. And I think, again, that, that idea that if the, one of the most wonderful things is that if you know that this is a pool of money that could last through several generations, you have the luxury of making money slowly. And inevitably, if you go into it with that mindset, you'll end up with a much better outcome at the other end. Um, you know? We've referred in this conversation a couple of times to family um, and, and the gift that they may receive. 
um, you know, post post death. Um, when somebody's planning and going into the sort of liquidity event process, or when do you think it's right for them to involve family in either decision making or letting them know the decisions that are being made? Yeah, um, each each choice around that. Um, David is, is an individual choice depending on the personalities that sit around the table. But what, what you know human nature um, is going to, you know a couple of things about human nature that are going to be quite important. The first one is, is that uh, everyone's going to have a vested interest in this. Um, they're going to want to make sure that their vested interests are well served in the process. Number two, is that if there's a lack of communication, people won't naturally assume good things. They'll assume that, they, you know, that they're, they're not getting their fair share or their right share about how that will work together. And so the t- I, rather than be prescriptive about the time, when's the right time, I'd rather recommend people going in and saying, let me tell you what you should do. The first one is, is you should make sure that everybody who has an interest, has a voice, okay, and that they feel as though what's important to them is being understood and taken into account. And then the second thing, that the process is transparent. We see a lot of people who tend to want to control things from the grave. Uh, and that's, that's not a value judgment. You know, the, the hands-on entrepreneurial mindset that made the money in the first place tends to want to stay in control of that and you can understand that. But what I would say is if that's the mindset, just make sure that you're communicating it while you're alive. Let let the next generation know I've got a vision, it's encapsulated in my will and these are the reasons why it's important I've set it up that way. That that, that conversation can't take place once you're gone. And so, so rather than knowing the timing, Clarkie, I'd, I'd be more inclined to say it's about um, making sure that the people who have an interest have a voice and then making sure that there's a really clear and transparent process around it so that people don't have to th- guess what's going to happen. They can know what's going to happen. They might not agree with it, but they can know and it'll stop the family from attacking each other at the back end if it's, if it's not right. So post the liquidity event, there's, there's a lot of emotions that are running through this. There's the, the, the change of a, of a business owner who's had, this has been an important part of their life. Arguably, in many cases, the most important part of their life leading up to that point is about to go. There's how do I think about managing this money where I perhaps, I perhaps don't have the skills, perhaps even more dangerously is I think I do have the skills, and then how do I make sure that this is going to be a gift for my family and the future generations and not a burden? It's actually hard work. And, and, and you know, we often see post the liquidity event, people are tired. Um, but, the, but, the, but the work on the second phase of their life is about to begin and they need to apply as much discipline and structure and energy to that second part as they did to the first. Um, but if they do that, uh, the... the there's plenty of examples of where uh, the liquidity event has created a stronger family. The liquidity event has created a more purposeful life for people. 
um, a higher level of satisfaction. The liquidity event doesn't create happiness. The choices that the entrepreneur makes following that is what will create the happiness. And as long as they're prepared to follow sort of similar principles and values, uh, they can end up in a really good spot. And it's, it, it's, you know, it's one of the great joys of our role, you know this, is working with people to, through that process. There's, there can be great joy and happiness on the other side of it. And I get an enormous amount of satisfaction from helping guide people to a good outcome uh, when that opportunity presents itself. Paul, I think that's a wonderful summary and conclusion to our conversation. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.